take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Today we begin a new expedition, a journey into the second Gospel. The Gospel of Mark. And I think some may ask the question, why Mark? I mean, why not Matthew? Why not Luke? Why not John? For that matter, you know, why not Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes or, or, or Leviticus? And really the answer to that question is if you look back at our 19 month history, y'all, we have studied the book of Exodus. We have studied the book of Ruth. We have studied the book of Jonah. We have studied the Psalms. If you think about it Old Testament wise, we've looked at Old Testament law, Old Testament history, Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament poetry. And then in the New Testament, we've studied Romans and James and Philippians and First John and Revelation. And so we've had New Testament epistles. We've had the apocalypse. And uh, so it is time for us to put our lens upon Jesus Christ. It, it's time for that because because in the Gospels, we actually see Jesus Christ more clearly, more personally and more powerfully than we see him anywhere else. And by clearly, we get to see the life, we get to see the ministry, we get to see the death and the resurrection of our great Savior. And we see Him in power, we see Him in lowliness, but in the Gospel of Mark, we see Him as a servant. And so the title of this entire series, it'll take us about a year to go through it, is called The Servant King. If you look on our website now, Daniel Coleman has designed a nice banner for us. It's called The Servant King. And you can click on that and get all of our sermons as we go week by week by week about The Servant King. And so, in Mark 10, verse 45, don't turn there, stay in chapter 1, but Mark 10, 45 is the key verse in the entire book. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in that verse, we see a twofold mission of Jesus. We see his servanthood and his sacrifice. He came to serve and he gave to give his life as a ransom payment for many. And I would tell you something interesting about the Gospel of Mark. From chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 45, the verse that I just quoted is uh, approximately... Three and a half years of Jesus' life and his ministry. One, one to ten forty-five. And then from eleven to sixteen is eight days. Don't you find that interesting? I'll tell you what's interesting about it. It's because it's almost like Mark is all about writing the service, the servanthood and the sacrifice of Jesus while on the cross, and the first ten chapters are nothing but introductory material to lead us up to the cross work of Jesus. And so we're going to see clearly Jesus' servanthood. And what Mark is going to do is he's going to call us to reflect the servanthood of Jesus. He's going to say, you need to look at, you need to look at Christ and see him as a servant, see him as your substitute, to see him as taking the place for you on the cross. But then you need to appropriate that to your heart so that you can reflect the same kind of lifestyle. Why are we going to the Gospel of Mark? The reason we're going to the Gospel of Mark is so that you and I can reflect the servanthood, the attitude, the mindset of a slave to the community that we surround so that we can show them the glory of Christ, the servant king. Are you all ready to do that? Do you all want to do that? All right, well, let's get going then. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 15. 
The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his opening statement. Right? And so what he's going to do is he is going to, for 16 chapters, lay out for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning right now is I want to begin this message and begin this sermon series by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if we could get up on the screen the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I want you, especially if you're note takers, I want you to write this down. This down. The gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospel is. Now, as we look at the definition, the first thing that we see is that it's news. The Gospel is news. It's, it's information. It's a message. It's something that's being told and instructed to people. When you pick up the newspaper or when you click, up, uh, click on the news uh, on your, on your uh, computer, you're actually looking for information. You're looking for stuff that's going to tell you what you did not know in the first place. And that's what the Gospel is. The gospel is news, but not only is it news, it's good news. It's the best news. I read a lot of news this week. I went on a lot of different websites. There's not a lot of good news out there right now. There, there isn't. Most news that we're reading about is bad news. But the gospel is good news. It's the best news. It's the most glorious news that we ever can hear. But you know what? We actually have to put that it's good news because it presupposes that there's bad news. The gospel presupposes their bad news. And the bad news is that you and I are sinners. That we are separated from a holy and perfect and righteous God. That because 
We idolize ourselves and we worship stuff like money and security and image and body type and all of these other things that we hold up as the most important things in the world. It separates us from God because we don't give Him the worship and honor and adoration that's due. So that separation creates condemnation. And we are in a state of condemnation apart from this Gospel. And so we deserve hell. We deserve to be judged and to be thrown into hell and to, and to die forever in our sins apart from the goodness and grace of God. And so the Gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners. That's you and I through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Alright, so it focuses on Jesus. And two weeks ago, I stood right here in front of this pulpit and I declared to you the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you all remember that? you remember that? What we said is that Jesus Christ is God. That in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word what? Was God. He is God, very God. But we also said that He's man. As we said in John 1.14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. And so God is also man combined in one. He is the God-man. I've never used one of these. We're just going to leave it right there. He is the God-man. He is the God -man. And so here we have just this unique unrepeatable pattern that God is dwelling in human flesh. And then we also said He's perfect. He's holy. Peter says that He committed no sin and there was no deceit found in His mouth such that He fulfilled all righteousness. You and I are called to fulfill righteousness. That's our standard. Be perfect because God is perfect. And yet we don't do it, y'all. We, we walk imperfectly and we sin all the time. But Jesus is perfect. And then when He fulfilled all righteousness, He became our substitute. He took our place on the cross. We deserve condemnation. He actually went in our place and was condemned at Calvary. He took on our sinfulness. He took on the punishment that deserved and so He's our substitute. And He died in our place. And then He was buried. And in, in His burial, it looked like, it looked like there was no hope. But on the third day, He rose from the dead. And He defeated hell. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defended the powers of darkness so that you and I could have the hope of resurrection from the dead. We could have the hope of new life in Him. We could have the hope of actually having our sins forgiven. And so He is risen. And we also said that He is life. Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and the life. And He who believes in Me, even though He is dead, can be made alive again. He is life. And, and, and as life, alright, he, He's also Savior. He is our Redeemer. As, as we said, Mark 10.45, He says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A payment. To be a Redeemer. To be one who can rescue you from your sins. And He is worthy. We just finished a series in Revelation and the last thing that we read about Jesus is, is this phrase. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor and strength. He is worthy of our worship. And so if you look, there's one other word I want you to see on the definition of the Gospel. It is The Gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through faith. Through faith. Through faith. 
It's not enough for you to know the facts. It's not enough for us to merely shake our heads and say, yeah, that's, that's who Jesus is. Faith is putting your whole life, your whole future, your whole identity, all of your ambitions in Christ. This is who I am now. This is what my response to who He is. I am now going to deny myself. I'm going to deny my idolatry. And I'm going to cast myself upon this Savior, this Redeemer, this Worthy One. And I am now going to put my whole lot in with Him. All my eggs are in His basket. And whatever He calls me to do, I'm going to do. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow after Jesus. That's the Gospel. That's what it is. And I would call each one of you today that if you have not come to that place where all of your eggs are in the basket of the gospel and you're following hard after Christ, I call you to do it today. Because one thing we see in this text is that John the Baptist called people to make decisions for Christ. Jesus called people to make decisions for Christ. And I would say, don't come in and out of this building week in and week out without ever making the decision to follow after Jesus Christ. So follow Him today. So, the thing that I want you to know, two Sundays ago, we preached the gospel and called people to be saved. We called people to be justified because of this knowledge, this information about Jesus. We said, you can be justified. You can be declared righteous. Today, I want you to know that in Mark's gospel, He's going to continually give us the gospel and we're going to see layers of it. And we're going to see the beauty of it. But Mark would say that not only are you justified by the gospel, but you're sanctified by it. You're made more holy by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be conformed more into the image of Christ as you reflect on the gospel, meditate on it, and appropriate its power. Let me tell you, you can be a better worshiper through the gospel. Alright? Because now, once you appropriate the gospel, you can worship God in spirit and in truth. Before that, you couldn't worship in spirit and truth. You try as hard as you want to, but the spirit wasn't fueling your worship. Husband, you can be a better husband because of the gospel. Listen, Christ gave his life. He loved the church and gave himself for the church. He, he gave himself for his bride. If you appropriate the gospel, you can sacrificially love your wife and care for her and minister to her. Wives, you can submit to your husbands. You can honor your husbands. Why? Because Christ is your head. He is the source of your life. And no matter what your husband is like, you can honor him and love him because of the gospel that's fueling your heart and your mind and your actions. Children, you can honor your parents and you can submit to their leadership. How? Through the gospel. How is that going to help you? Because Christ himself honored his father, even honored his earthly parents. And you can appropriate his resurrection power to help you do that as well. You can be a friend. You can be a better friend. You can be a better servant through the power of the gospel. And that's what Mark would say. And so that gives us, that leads us to the three stages of the text. If you're taking notes, you can write these three stages down. They're, they're pretty clear in the text. The three stages are this. He's coming. He's here. And he's preaching. He's coming. He's here. And he's preaching. Mark is saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the beginning of it. And the beginning of it is this. We've got to announce that he's coming. We're going to see that he's here. And we've got to see the very first thing that he does as he approaches us. So stage one is he is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. Now the messianic hopes 
the hopes for a Messiah were extremely high at this point in time in, in redemptive history. And the Jews, man, they were, they were discouraged. They were despondent. They were divisive. As a matter of fact, you had about three or four major groups of Jews that wouldn't have anything to do with each other because they had their own little splinters of religion going on in and around Jerusalem and Judea because there had been essentially 300 years of silence. There had been no Scripture that had been written. There had been no prophetic voice that was going out. There had been no visions. There had no been no physical manifestations of God Himself. No burning bushes. No cloud by day. No pillar uh, at night. No fire. No, no nothing. And the people of God Israel was was discouraged and they were hopeful and they were desperate for something to happen. And then all of a sudden, there's this man. He's out in the wilderness. He he looks like a prophet. He he dresses like a prophet. He smells like a, a prophet. He, he 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 just there's something about him, and we've been waiting for a voice. We've been waiting for, for God to do something, to break loose, to bring in the kingdom. And so what happened? Thousands and thousands of people leave Jerusalem and Judea and they go out to the wilderness to see this man and to hear this man and to hear what his message is. In verses two to three, two and three, we see the prophecy regarding John. We see the prophecy regarding John. And essentially, Mark quotes Isaiah. He quotes Malachi. And he even potentially is quoting here Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. And, and what, what Mark is trying to show us here is that John the Baptist is not some self-styled, self-promoting, self-righteous prophet that is trying to put all the spotlight on him and is getting many followers as he possibly can get upon himself so that he can have this big, grand, awesome ministry and be able to say, I'm the greatest that, that, that lives right now. Actually, what Mark is trying to say is that everything that John is doing is rooted in Old Testament Scripture. It's something that God has been telling us about since Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi. And not only that, God told us that there was be one like John coming and prefiguring him in the person of Elijah. In other words, Mark is rooting his Gospel and he's rooting the arrival of Jesus Christ in the prophetic word of the Old Testament Scripture. And he is saying that God is faithful to fulfill His word. God is going to fulfill His promises. And so we need to trust in that. And I just want to say right off the bat, y'all, as the people of God, let's trust the Word of God. Let's just trust Him. And when He makes a promise, let's believe that promise. And when He declares a truth, let's believe that truth. I mean, when, when God says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let's believe Him for that. Because He's faithful to fulfill His Word just like Mark is declaring in verses 2 and 3. And so there, this prophetic word was going out about John and that he, He's going to send this messenger and He's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And, and I, I want us to, to make one note here in verses 2 and 3. The message is prepare the way of the who? The Lord. The Lord. All of Israel would identify this as Yahweh. God Himself. 
the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And now Mark is applying this phrase to none other than Jesus Christ. This is a way for Mark at the very beginning to declare that Jesus Christ is God. He is Yahweh. He is King. And he's going to show that he's servant King. And what is the ministry of John? Look at verses 4 to 6. The ministry of John is that he calls people to repent for the forgiveness of sin. He calls people to turn their back on their sin, to turn their back on their idolatry, their idolatry of security, their, their idolatry of self, and to turn their face toward the coming one, toward the Messiah, in order to worship Him. And so he says, repent of those things, turn from those things, so that you can be ready for the one who is about to come. And y'all, John was doing nothing but preaching the old time religion. And that is repentance. Repentance of sin. Read Moses, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read the minor prophets, read everything that God said to the people of God, which was repentance. And that's what John was calling them to do. And he was baptizing. His ministry was baptism. And it was for the confession of sin. Now, the interesting thing about John is that he experienced multitudes of, of, of followers. And I find it interesting that the text says that all of Judea, and all of Jerusalem came out to listen to John and to be baptized by him. The reason I find it interesting is, is did all of Judea and all of Jerusalem embrace Jesus when he came on the scene? No. So, what does that tell us? Does it tell us that John and Jesus were preaching a different message? Hey, we know John and Jesus weren't preaching a different message because in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28, there's this man named Apollos. And Apollos didn't know anything but the baptism of John. But when Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and, and they instructed him a little bit more about this man, Jesus Christ, and his death, did Apollos say, no, that's not at all what I've heard. I, I was a follower of John. No, I, you guys can have Jesus. No. He immediately is converted because this is in line with what John the Baptist preached. So there's continuity here. So, so what's going on? Guys, this is what I want to say because I think this was what happened is that people know they have a spiritual need. People know that there is something missing in their heart. And people also know that there is a God in heaven and He is big and He is great. And I know that... I, because something's missing in my heart and because there is a God and He is big and He is great, I need to get right with Him in some way. And so they hear a voice, a voice of one calling out in the wilderness. And they go and they flock and they hear this voice and they see that this man is obviously from God. His source of strength is God. And so He calls people to, to repentance and He calls them to be baptized to symbolize that. And they confess their sins and they're baptized. But listen, not everybody who was baptized by John was saved by God. Just because you feel a need, and just because you feel guilty about your sin, and just because you do some kind of outward act, that doesn't mean that you're saved. Because salvation means calling on Christ. Depending on Christ. Casting yourself at the feet of Christ, needing the mercy of Christ, and saying that now my life is going to be all about Christ. You see, you see, people for 
thousands of years have now been making decisions and doing outward acts to try to cleanse themselves of their sins, but they're missing the one thing that they need. They're missing Jesus Christ. I just want to say, confession of sin, all right, without casting yourself on Jesus is going to produce condemnation. Religion apart from a Redeemer is a, is a way to be ruined. Alright? And, 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 and saying that you're one way without appropriating the Savior's blood to yourself and trusting in His righteousness is nothing but an ingredient for you to be twice the son or daughter of hell than you were in the first place. Be warned today. Be warned. And so we see the testimony of John. We see what he is actually saying. And, and, and if you look down at verses 7 to 8, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you think I preach with power? You think I'm a man of God? You think I have the message of the kingdom? You haven't seen or heard anything yet. I'm just a messenger. I'm an errand boy. Uh, the one who's coming after me is stronger and mightier and better and bigger and more glorious than me. As a matter of fact, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to be his his servant. Do you know that a Hebrew slave was not allowed to wash his master's feet or take off his shoes or put his shoes back on because it was too demeaning? And John the Baptist is saying that I can't put on his shoes. I can't take off his sandals because I'm not worthy of the honor to be able to do that. That's how mighty and how glorious the coming one actually is. One of the commentators said, in no stronger manner could the mystery and the dignity of the coming one be emphasized. John's ministry was clearly focused on the coming Christ. Now, before we go to the second stage he is here, I want us to just reflect on this one thing. John said, He is coming. He is coming. So repent and believe and be baptized. And you know what we say today? He came. He's coming again. So repent, believe, and be baptized. Right? Listen, if we're going to fall in the faithful line of godly men and women from John the Baptist on, you and I are to declare the One who has come, call people to repentance and belief and baptism so that they also can receive the forgiveness of sins. Alright, so that's, that's the He is coming part of the stage. Now He's here. He, he's here. We see the appearance of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He didn't come from Jerusalem. He didn't come from Judea. He came from Nazareth. It was a small, backwater, hick town for a hometown. It had the, it had the reputation of being uh, low in morality, lax in religion, and irrelevant uh, otherwise. That was the reputation of Nazareth. And, and, and what Mark is doing by saying that Jesus came from Nazareth is he's pointing out the fact that the worth of Jesus is not found up in his professional degree or his religious resume. It's not bound up in where he's from or what he's already done. No, it, he's not part of the religious establishment. I mean, the fact is, Jesus was born in an obscure place. He grew up in an obscure town 
raised by obscure parents. He spent his whole life with common people. He spent his childhood, his adolescence, and most of his adulthood with common people. Not anybody of any count. He didn't lead a religious organization. He wasn't even the lead rabbi in his own hometown. His resume was not impressive by human standards. And we will see in the coming months that he was rejected. He was maligned. He was blasphemed. He was murdered. He was made fun of. He was placed in a tomb that was was purchased by somebody else that didn't even really know him because he didn't even have a burial spot. He died the most brutal death conceived. He had, he had nothing. I mean, the most, the most faithful followers of his lot abandoned him or betrayed him right before he went down. And church, I just want you to know, I think that in a subtle way, Mark is trying to tell us that your significance is not bound up in where you're from. It's not bound up in what schools you went to. It's not bound up in how much money you make. It's not bound up in how successful you are in life. It's not bound up in how pretty you are. It's not bound up in, in all of these other things. Your significance is bound up in one thing. Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Because that's what we're about to see. We're about to see who Jesus Christ belongs to. Look at the baptism of Jesus here. He came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why is Jesus being baptized? What's going on here? Is Jesus a sinner? Does, does He need cleansing? No, Jesus is not a sinner. But what He is doing, He's identifying Himself with sinners. He, he, he's, he's, he's showing that He is human flesh and that He's come to represent sinners. By being baptized, He's officially embracing His role as the suffering servant. In going down in the waters of baptism and coming back up, let me tell you what this is right here. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. That's what it is. This is the official commissioning of Jesus to march all the way to Jerusalem and all the way to Golgotha and all the way up that cross and saying, I'm going to come in the place of sinners and die in their place. That's what baptism is doing here. And then we see the anointing of Jesus. And so the, the Holy Spirit comes down. The heavens are torn open. I want you to know, it's just a little interesting fact right there in verse 10, that the only other place that the verb torn open is used in the Gospel of Mark is at the end of the book, when we, what we talked about the other night, where the curtain in the temple was rent in two, completely torn open. I think there's some significance there that we could explore another time but the spirit of god comes down and mark describes it as a dove he's not a dove or anything like that but he comes down gracefully and powerfully and visibly and comes upon jesus and jesus is now filled and anointed by his own spirit and now the spirit of god is going to lead christ he's going to instruct christ he's going to provide direction for christ this is, an, this is a, a huge thing. This is the anointing of Jesus for His ministry. And then I love the declaration of His worth here. This is the declaration of the worth of Jesus. The Father says, You are My beloved Son. With You, I am well pleased.
the Father is looking down on His eternal Son. The One who had, who had dwelled with, lived with, fellowshiped with for all eternity past in harmony and unity and glory in prestige in majesty. And His Son says, Father, I'm going to go on the mission to rescue Your creation. And now Jesus has been obedient all the way up to 30 years old. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He now goes down in the waters of baptism and He comes back up and as a proud, excited, pleased Father, He looks down on His Son and He says, Son, You are my one Son. You are my unique Son. You are my beloved Son. And in You, I am well pleased. This is a moment like no other in the history of redemption. The unique worth of Jesus. And what happens? The Spirit throws Him out of there and goes into the wilderness. And there we see the temptation of Jesus. The question is, why? Why does He go to the wilderness? Why is He tempted? Why is this important? I mean, I mean, He's God. He's very God. He's God-man. What's the significance of Him becoming Him being tempted? Well, notice that Mark doesn't talk a lot about it. Notice that he just says that he goes in the wilderness to be tempted by Jesus. Mark, why aren't you explaining this? Why don't you extrapolate a little bit more and, and give us more detail? I, y'all, I think it's just simply that Mark is saying that for the rest of his ministry and for the next 16 chapters, I'm going to show you how Jesus was tempted constantly. How He was battling Satan constantly. How He was having the forces of demons on Him constantly. And He was able to fend them off and fend off the temptation to exalt Himself or to exert His deity or to exert His power. But He wants to show us that Jesus was tempted in all ways just as we are, yet without sin. So that now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus can be compassionate with us. He can be sympathetic toward us. He can understand our temptation to want to exalt ourselves. Y'all, Jesus can understand our desires and our lusts. And He can understand the things that we go through, especially when we have temptations that come from outside of us because He experienced it fully. You realize that you don't, you do not experience the fullness of temptation when you actually ultimately give into it. When you finally give into temptation, is when you're saying, I can't take anymore, but there was more to come. You just give in. Jesus experienced the fullness of temptation because He never once gave into it. So that now in heaven, there is not a soul in earth who can say, Jesus doesn't understand my temptation. He doesn't understand my trials. He doesn't understand what I'm going through. No, He understands what you're going through more than you do because He never gave in. So we see the temptation of Jesus. And I just want to say to you guys this morning, you do not have a Savior that doesn't understand. You don't have a Savior that is aloof, that is separated from you. You have a Savior that knows exactly what you go through. He knows what your mind goes through. He knows what your heart feels. He knows the discouragements. He knows the depression. He knows the feelings of anxiety. He, he knows, he knows the, the feelings of, of failure. He he knows all of those things and He wants to come to you and say, I want to help you. I want to be compassionate toward you. I want to provide you the power to deal with what you're going through. 
Finally, in this text, we see stage three. We see he's preaching. I heard one preacher say one time, God only had one son and he made him a preacher. It tells you the highness and the honor of the office of the preacher. But what is he doing? He's doing the same thing that John was doing. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. I think Mark wants to see the timing of his preaching here. Jesus begins preaching after John was arrested. John goes off of the scene. Jesus comes on the scene. I think he wants us to see the content of Jesus preaching. He's preaching the Gospel of God. He's proclaiming it. He's declaring it over and over and over again. And you ask yourself the question, what is the Gospel of God? What is He preaching? He's preaching Himself. Mark actually gives us the content. The content of the Gospel here is the time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe in the Gospel. That is the Gospel. It was certainly explained. um, There's no doubt that Jesus was giving Old Testament allusions and Old Testament Scriptures to bring in and sharing with you about the Kingdom. But let me just tell you essentially what the message was. I'm the King. The Kingdom is here. Repent and trust in Me. Never before had the Gospel become so clear and so manifestly personal as when Jesus Christ stood on the mount and said, repent and believe in the Gospel because I am the personal manifestation of it. I am the good news. We live in a a culture that says, uh, keep your religion to yourself. We we live in a culture that says, um, it's okay for you to be religious, just make sure you do that in the confines of your home. But if you're going to insist on telling other people about your religion or about this quote-unquote gospel, just make sure that you leave room for other religions. Just make sure you leave open the opportunity that there are other doors that you can make it up to God. If you go out and proclaim the gospel today, let's just say you go to Oxford Lake. Let's just say you go door to door. Or, Or you go to a friend this evening. Right? There is a temptation to kind of cower down and give a minimalistic message with, with not an exclusivity about it, but more of an inclusive, oh, um, kind of watered down message. Because the fact is, you're going to be looked at like a weirdo. You're going to be looked at like, um, you, you are hostile or you're intolerant or you're unaccepting. But I want to tell you that if you cower down, you are not honoring the example that Jesus Christ set Himself. He proclaimed the Gospel. The good news of salvation in Himself. That the Kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. So repent and put your trust in the Savior. The only One who can redeem you from your sins. Redeemer Church, I want to call us to that. I want to call us to be a loving, merciful, compassionate, patient people. But I want to call us to daily and weekly and monthly proclamation of the Gospel. Because how shall anybody call on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
Jesus Christ was the prince of preachers. He, re- he, he preached the gospel. He called people to repentance. He called people to faith. And this was the first, this was the beginning of the gospel that we'll learn in Mark. What I want to do right now is I want to finish by meditating on what Mark tells us about Jesus in verses 1 to 16. And if you're comfortable, uh, if you want to bow and just meditate, great. If you're not comfortable doing that, that's no problem. I want us to meditate on what this passage tells us about Jesus. It tells us He's the beloved Son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, then you know what you'll do today? You'll bow before Him and worship Him with your whole heart. This passage says that He's the Lord. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then you'll deny yourself today. You'll take up the cross and you'll follow after Him wherever He leads you to go. This passage says that Jesus is mighty. If you believe that He's mighty, you will walk out of this building today believing that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. And that you can do all that He's called you to do. And you can do it with power and with strength because the very Spirit of Jesus dwells inside of you. This passage says He's sacrificial. If you believe He's sacrificial, then you'll fall on your knees today in thankfulness to the Savior who surrendered eternal glory and took on human flesh so that you could exchange your sinfulness for His sinlessness. He is unique. And if you believe that He is unique and there's no one like Him, you will rejoice at the mention of His name. You will sing His praise today. You will seek to magnify His worth today. This passage says that Jesus is love. He loved us so much, He experienced the full onslaught of human temptation in order to identify with us and to be victorious for us. And if you believe He's love, then you'll love Him today. And you'll love others as a response to His love for you. And this passage says that He's a preacher. And if you believe He's a preacher of the Gospel, then you'll boldly proclaim the Gospel to your friends, to your family members, to total strangers, because you know that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Amen.